0: I love the sobering effects of it, like, like you're talking about, because I used to hate leaving my car places. This is all pre-Uber, right? And so now I'm at a state in my life where I debate if I'm still sober enough the next day to call Uber to drive my kids to school for me. But at the same time, I think that's baller as shit. So I call Uber anyways, because safety is my first priority. That's it. Hey, give it up for me. I'm Kevin. Not really. Jay Wook, thank you guys so much. I love you guys. Thank you very much.
1: I know she And tell her, what you really want to know.
2: Give it up for Jay Wook, everybody. Out here from Sacramento, the stepson of anarchy in the house. It would work. I don't know. It might work. So, uh, San Francisco's a sanctuary city for immigrants, which is dope. Hell yeah, give it up. <laughs> give that shit up. So, it's Portland. Portland's a sanctuary city. Yeah. Too bad immigrants can't actually afford to live in that motherfucker, though. That's the only thing. Ah, ha, 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 ha. That's a funny shit, America! <laughs> That's how it is, though, man. That's how it is in este país. Hey, what's the compliment heckler? Did she leave the the, the compliment heckler? Did they leave? Moving. Hey, <laughs> I want to just welcome you back. Thank you. You're doing a great job as an audience member. I just want to say that. Thank you for being quiet in the bathroom while we were getting ready. <laughs> just dope. Uh, so what's going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, remember Alternative Facts? You guys remember that? The Alternative Facts thing, right? Yeah, attorney facts. Who remembers when that shit was called American history, though? In <laughs> <laughs> Yo, man, the next comic is fucking hilarious here. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's up, man. Young George Costanza. Give it up for Young George Costanza. <laughs> Young Costanza, what's up? Yo, hey, the next comic uh, recently moved to uh, to Los Angeles, out the bay, and uh, he's very funny. Give it up for Kevin
0: Monroe, y'all. That's how dope my set is. The mic dropped before I even got on. <laughs> Drop the mic, son. No, nah, it's it's all good, man. Them edibles are a motherfucker, man. Uh, if you don't believe me, go to Kevin Monroe's Facebook webpage and look at the banner picture. It's me doing a show here a couple years back when I ate an edible and got on stage, and halfway through a bit, I got caught in a mental cycle. I couldn't end the story. Uh, uh. Like the characters in the story I was trying to tell started talking to each other and I couldn't leave. <laughs> and the whole time I'm looking back at Pam like you motherfucker. <laughs> them Rice Krispies had some shit in them. <laughs> Little table right there. Like a table of Rice Krispies. That was that was that was wicked, man. I don't, I think I did an HBO special in my mind, but it was 10 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, what what the hell is going on, man? I don't know uh, all this sexual assault shit happening. Uh, I don't know if y'all heard about this, but Neil deGrasse Tyson got caught up in that. You didn't hear about that? Yeah, w- yeah. While he was uh, while he was uh, at, uni- at Cornell or University of Texas, I forget which one. Yeah, man, I was like, nerds are raping too now. Like, <laughs> like Neil deGrasse Tyson is Mike deGrasse
3: Tyson now. <laughs>
0: Pluto's a planet, not a planetoid, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Call Pluto a planet again. Call it a planet. I will whoop your monkey ass. (laughs) The planetoid. I just think that would be the worst thing in the world to put Mike DeGrasse Tyson, Neil DeGrasse Tyson, Neil DeGrasse Tyson on on the witness stand. Cause he'll kill you. You can't put him on there. So, uh, uh, Dr. Tyson, uh, so where were you on the, uh, the evening of the alleged assault? What is time? <laughs> there are multiple, p- all right, you know what, nigga, get the fuck off the tape, you know what, you're fine, just get the fuck out. <laughs> I don't understand physics. Get out! Neil deGrasse Tyson. Love that dude, I wish that was my advisor. I really did. Uh, I, you know, I I spent I went to undergrad and grad school, and uh, yeah, I was the only black person there. Uh, so no, nah, don't don't clap for that. That's a, that is it's it's horrible. I mean, like, I, I mean, I could imagine myself having Neil Grass Tyson as an advisor. Like, yeah, man, that, that's a great paper, man. Let's get some pussy. <laughs> he used to wrestle. That's that's a pussy getting dude. Like he knew yeah, anyway. Like. <laughs> nah man uh i'm I'm just saying it's i just think we just need to listen to women more you know as as much as we can now i'm not i'm not I'm not pandering here I'm just saying you know they're half of the population they might know some shit you know the funny thing about Trump is like i used to uh when i was out here i used to uh i used to hang out at the the phoenix bar I used to go to um uh, you know, there's a, a bunch of dive bars on Polk Street I used to go to, and like Trump sounds like that drunk dude that's sitting next to you, that's like telling you shit. And at one point, he tells you some part of the story. You just you gotta look at him, and be like, "Nigga, shut the fuck up." <laughs> oh yeah, you know I was I was a Navy SEAL and I you know I, I shot Bin Laden. All right, nigga, you know what? <laughs> You know, that's what, he, that's what this country needs. We we just need some dude to stand next to Trump at the podium. So when he starts saying shit like, oh, yeah, I was going to run in there and save those kids. Nigga, shut the fuck up. <laughs> 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 just wanted this one time. Just one person to do that one time. <laughs> Nigga, you can't even run, motherfucker. What the fuck? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What the fuck are you? <laughs> shit, man. <laughs> You, scared it. you need help to get on a golf cart, motherfucker. you? I mean, don't let your drink buddies get to the point where they start saying shit like that. Oh, yeah, you know. You, you know I fucked Britney Spears, right? Come on. Really? <laughs> Shit's out of control. Just just don't let it get to that point. That's what happened to Trump. Like, he spent his entire life doing shit, like, saying shit like that, and nobody checked him. You know Trump would be if he didn't have money? Trump would be that dude that you see getting arrested at Safeway, for trying to steal a watermelon by sticking it under his shirt. You know what I mean? (laughs) Thinking nobody would notice. (laughs) And they just got him, like, in a handcuff, (laughs) you know, to the (laughs) bike, handcuffed to, like, the the bike locks. Like, yo, you really thought you could do that? (laughs) Just stick a watermelon under your (laughs) T-shirt? Just walk out of here like that? That's the mentality, but he has money, so everybody just kind of looks the other way, you know what I mean? So it's. Oh man, but uh, he—he's got some some bad bras though. Oh man, oh man, that that, that Stormy Daniels shit, man. Ah, oh. oh my God, I I love that because I was I was uh, able to watch titties at work, <laughs> and then when they looked at my my profile, I was like, no, I'm looking at Yahoo News, man. <laughs> I'm not looking at porn. This is Yahoo News. <laughs> oh my goodness, ah, that's that's just terrible. And the funny thing is, like, they have hella headshots of Stormy Daniels just her head but with every news story they cut from here to start here <laughs> next on the news titties like <laughs> that might as well just be the banner titties like it's not even a man alright uh what one one other thing you know that shit about him like running in there you know saving those kids he, to us it sounds stupid but you gotta realize The people that voted for Trump, those dudes that buy AR-15s, they have the same fantasies. They believe that, too. Like, it sounds stupid. Us, like, oh, come on. You a 70-year-old fat motherfucker. You ain't gonna run in there. But those fat motherfuckers buying AR-15s, they believe that. (laughs) They really think that they can do some Rambo Chuck Norris shit (laughs) at the drive-thru. Like... (laughs) Like, hold on, one second, let me get my comfortable shoes on. What saying, <laughs> My family's in Florida, so I see these people all the time, man. For real, for real. My brother teaches high school in Florida. They take him out of school to go hunting. That's a legitimate excuse to leave school to go hunting. They, they uh, It's, I know white people, y'all gotta, y'all gotta fix this shit, man. I mean... <laughs> This is this is a white problem. This is not, we not out there, you know, like if a nigga gets shot, it's for a reason. <laughs> you know, y'all just out there just spraying people. Look, I mean, <laughs> oh, the ghost is back. <laughs> now, y'all, y'all, this is a white problem. Y'all gotta figure out how to not like, how to deal with people, you know? Just, if you mad at somebody, you know, clown them. Like that's what we do, you know? <laughs> Don't you know, show up and start spraying the place down. I don't I don't that doesn't solve that doesn't solve anything. Your ego is not gonna be spared. Cause you're gonna go to prison full of black dudes who are gonna talk shit about you anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you might as well figure out how to figure that shit out on the playground, man. Just man, when I came to when I came to high school in Oakland, they made fun of me all the time because I had an accent I was, you know, I had a big Caribbean accent, you know, and people were like, well, what's wrong? Why is your accent now? I was like, cuz, I don't want to be clowned and I'll be taken seriously. Like, you can't, you can't walk around with a Caribbean accent in a black community and not get fucked with. Like, like you know what, you wouldn't even do that now. Like, if, if you go to your doctor right now and he comes out of the office with like a look on his face like, it's diabetes, man. You know what I mean? You'd be like, oh, you know that sounds terrible, but uh, it, it sounds pretty festive. Under the see. You know what I mean? So you gotta fix that up, man. You gotta clean it up. Man, I, I had this one cat I went to high school with, his name was Dietrich. Uh, Dietrich, uh, Dietrich had a, uh, I was 15 years old, came to America, 15 years old, at a, at a Catholic high school in Trinidad. Dietrich was a grown ass man. That dude, he had a job. Dietrich had a car. Dietrich had children, okay? (laughs) Dripping Jericho juice on my homework. I love that cat. I gotta find Dietrich. All right, I gotta go, guys. My name is Kevin Monroe. Give it up for your host one more time. The Portland monster. What up Kevin
2: Monroe, everybody hell yeah man round of applause man you guys are fucking doing awesome we're we only got one more comic and then we'll get the fuck up out of here i had like one thing i was like oh yeah the fuck the nra right fuck the nra right yeah but come to find out they get a lot of discounts right they're getting a lot of discounts now i don't own a gun but i'm just saying If a 22 is going to save me $20 at Jiffy Lube, man. I'm just saying, man. I could see. Arm the janitors, that's what I say. Arm the fucking janitors because they always live, right? You ever hear of a janitor getting shot during a fucking... You never hear about the janitor getting shot, man. You never. They're always... I don't know what the fuck they're doing during the fucking mass shootings because they're never getting shot. (laughs) Those motherfuckers. What the fuck, man? I feel like like the the Navy should like train them like on some and make them like a special I don't know SEAL team six period. That's 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 what all that was about right there. That last line? That's what all that was about. That's it right there. This is the third time I do it and no one laughs, but you know what? Fuck it. San Francisco, what's up, man? Hey, you you ever heard that song uh uh, the CZ Top song, All the Girls Crazy About a Sharp Dress Man. Well, your next comic, man, is probably the sharpest dress man in here tonight. Uh, he's from Portland, man. He's very funny. Give it up for Isaac Pendergrass.
1: How the
4: fuck did I get here? <laughs> Everybody is high. Yeah, me me and this guy look like we just uh were on our way to our barbershop quartet practice. <laughs> uh, no nah, but but my my dad used to smoke a little herb late at night when he thought I was asleep, so right now it really feels like home. So just wanted you to know that. Uh, but but uh, a couple weeks ago I was I drove down to a uh Walmart in Woodburn, Oregon. N- not because I hate myself. Uh, no, it's uh, it's because I wanted to get a little taste of what it would be like if the South actually did rise again. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I was not disappointed. I don't know if you guys have it here, but in Portland we have guys with uh, Confederate flags on their jeeps. Uh, yes yeah, it pro- probably wouldn't work here. Um, <laughs> it it works in Portland though. But I think that's I think that's where they come from. That that Walmart. Um, <laughs> uh, they were uh, they were all there. They were all there. But while I was there, uh, a couple spaces down from me, there was this couple, and they were they were really going at it. I mean, it was was really heavy. Uh, Judging from the events unfolding before me, uh, sex was imminent. Yeah, Uh, and that that really upset me because I had my kids in the back seat, and I couldn't really watch it the way I wanted to. You know, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that joke works better in Portland. Uh, But no, um, like I said, I have two kids, and they are getting older, which apparently is a minimum bar you have to clear in order to be a good parent. Yeah, The kids need to be getting older. You guys don't agree? No? (laughs) But, uh, you know, I'm trying to be a good dad, but it's getting interesting. Uh, Just the other day, my daughter came into the room, and she was trying to explain to me how her little brother's Paw Patrol episodes have gotten so much more mature. So much so that she can now sit down and watch them with him. And it was in that moment that I realized that you can love your kids with all your heart and still not give a shit about what they're talking about. You know? That was a very freeing moment for me, you know? I knew I knew I could do it with my wife, but I you know, I, I hadn't discovered that it worked for the kids yet. Um, man, I wasted seven years on that kid. Um, <laughs> Um, but uh, it, uh and again like I said it's it's getting interesting uh, challenging again my daughter uh, a couple weeks ago I found out that her favorite artist is R Kelly yeah I know right yeah yeah you guys understand wait wait not not bump and grind R Kelly uh, I'm talking about I believe I can fly R Kelly all right I'm a good parent guys come on give me some credit <laughs> Uh, un- unfortunately, both of those R. Kellys like to piss on children, um, <laughs> uh, allegedly. <laughs> and my son, my son, he's a he's a, a, a fan of the police. Yeah, uh, no, not Sting, <laughs> not Sting. The the actual police. And sometimes we're driving around, and I'll see the cops, and I'm like, oh shit, it's the cops. And his head will pop up in the backseat and be like, where, Dad? And then other times he'll see him first. He's like, "It's the cops, Dad," and I'm like, "Oh shit!" But, but, you know, at least, at least there's two of us looking for him. You know, you know? I feel safer. <laughs> All right. So how, how's everybody doing tonight? All right. Yay! Give it up for Pedro one time. Yeah. Um, how's everybody doing with uh, Trump? Oh no. Not not so good? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kevin, I got you. <laughs> no, I uh I do due to our current reality, I've been watching a lot of horror movies to relax, you know? You know? <laughs> Say ha- have you ever noticed that every haunted house movie is essentially about two white families fighting over real estate? Yeah? You notice? You notice that? Yeah. Yeah, but but the thing is one of those white families is dead yeah <laughs> can you comprehend the level of privilege in that premise everybody yeah. oh he got he got that right away <laughs> uh no nah, but um yeah it, it's, it's disgusting man it's really disgusting um well I, I don't think you guys heard me there's a there's a dead white family that thinks it has the rights to live in a house that's just been bought by another white family. Mm-hmm. And, and if that's not bad enough, there's a living white family who's in fear of being murdered by said dead white family. And they're thinking, eh, we can make this work. Yeah, every single movie. And and the, the living white family does everything to get the dead white family to move out, everything. Sometimes they bring in Native Americans to do chants. Sometimes holy water crosses priests everything. I'm I'm just a little disappointed that they never moved a black family in next door, you know? <laughs> <laughs> really? Is that what I get for that? That's <laughs> I, think, I think that deserved better. <laughs> now, but I think we know why they didn't do that, right? Yeah, they, they both had to move out, right? Yeah, all right. I, I, okay, but let me be clear. Uh, my wife hates that joke, so I want it, I want to get it clear that uh, the Black family is an upstanding Black family, and they will bring the property value up in that neighborhood. Okay, <laughs> all right. The ghosts are racist. All right. <laughs> <laughs> ah, all right. Um, you know, say what you will about the Trump administration, uh, they. Okay. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, they they are doing things that I never thought were possible. I mean, they've created something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime, and that's uh, sad. White people. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> you guys seen them? You seen it? I mean, Facebook's full of them. Portland's full of them. Uh, San Francisco's got to be full of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know. A friend of mine, a white friend, called me up just after the election, and he said, uh, "Isaac, I am. I'm feeling a feeling, and I don't know what it is." Yeah, it was sad. Um, he said, "I, I, I think it may be oppression." Yeah. <laughs> oppression. <laughs> I calmed him down a bit. I was like, "Nah, it's uh, I think what you're experiencing right now is what most uh, most other races refer to as sadness." You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on from that. <laughs> Got a lot of sad white people in here tonight. Uh, all right, uh, so you probably you guys probably gather that I am from the South. No? Sure. Well, okay, good. <laughs> so I, I like to make a little fun of the South, just just a little bit. Um, uh, did did you guys hear about the brain-eating amoeba in Georgia? No. Uh, one person. Uh, d- well, it's okay if you didn't hear about it. It went by really quickly. Apparently there wasn't enough uh, food there for it. No? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's a that's a dumb Georgia joke. Uh, <laughs> uh, also in my hometown of South Carolina, um, uh, the officials there uh, busted up a child sex ring it was a child sex thing they busted it up but I, I, I went online and looked at the mug shots and there were about 25 perpetrators in total there were about nine black guys and the rest were all white guys and i i just thought it was really nice that there was something that could bring us together like that you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i i, I always knew it would be the children you know mm. It's okay, guys. Yeah, you don't like that, do you? <laughs> I I apologize. Um, yeah, that's a terrible joke. It's a, <laughs> I get it. I know it's a, it's a it's a terrible joke, but I, I want to be real with you. Um, the reason why I look at the mugshots, so I told you that I'm from South Carolina, um, and I don't get to make it home very often. So sometimes I just hope that just maybe. I'll see a family member. Um, Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys, I think that is my time. Thank you very much.
2: That's it, give it up for Isaac Pendergrass, Kevin Monroe. Jay Wook from Sacramento, Kevin Paniagua. I've been your host, Pedro Andrade. Thank you so much. Hey, stick around for the next show. Only Girls Aloud. It's going to be dope. So, y'all know what to do. Good night.
1: Uh we're gonna take like we to take a 10-minute break in between. If you've already paid, hang out. If you're a comic, please hang out. Next show is gonna be all ladies, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Yay! If you are if you're a comic here and you haven't gotten your bag yet, find me, I'll give you your bag, it's gonna be rad. Yay. No, that's a mission. That's a mission. That's a mission. And they start chasing us. Trying to
3: shoot. Trying to.
5: Welcome to the Weekly Review. I have two guests here who have joined me. Please introduce yourselves.
6: My name is Lenora
5: Lee.
7: And my name is Hien Huin.
5: Thanks for being here. And there's an upcoming dance performance that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. So you joined us uh, a few months ago. It's hard to keep track of the time these days. Um, and the last performance we saw was just really impactful. It was over on Angel Island. And I just, ugh, I can't say how touching it was, it was just really incredible, so.
6: What were your thoughts about that as an experience <sighs> for an audience member?
5: Um, and first we should also, the full name of the performance was.
6: Within These Walls and we created a sequel mm-hmm. named yes. Dreams of Flight. Yes,
3: it yes.
5: It was
6: a, an immersive multimedia dance performance that was staged at the Angel Island Immigration Station on Angel Island State Park.
5: Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it was my first time being to Angel Island, so just being in that, in that space in nature that's so close to us felt pretty, um, it was felt like a lot to be there in that space, and then also to be in the particular environment where folks had lived, I think I could really feel the energy of what had taken place there, mm-hmm. and so it brought, t- uh, it's difficult to put into words. It felt like, I just felt like all these emotions being in this space and then seeing, hearing these stories, hearing people's words shared and interacting with the dancers and having, sharing, it just felt, there are so many different, it's difficult, yeah, it's difficult to put into words. It just felt like it was touching on so many senses because it wasn't just visual, it wasn't just audio. It was more it was interactive as well and then also spiritual, I think, to be in the same place that people were before and to not be there at the same time as them and still to witness them in a way. Mm-hmm,
6: mm-hmm. That particular immigration station was opened between 1910 and 1940. Uh, it burned down, the administration building burned down in 1940, so they moved it to, the mainland, but during that time, there were approximately a million immigrants processed at that station, which most people, I think, maybe even from the Bay Area don't know about. Mm -hmm. And so of those million immigrants, about 170,000 were Chinese, and because there was a Chinese Exclusion Act in place, um, many of the Chinese were held under scrutiny and held there for much longer periods of time, and they were uh, interrogated and basically imprisoned until they can prove their innocence and maybe Hian was in the piece for uh, both renditions, both Mm -hmm. in 2017 and in 2019, Mm -hmm. and I think he can talk a little bit about um, maybe the the differences between both of those performances, even though we restaged it for this past May, uh, we added a sequel, but there were differences in the actual Um, approach to the audience members and the way that we came kind of charged and activated the second time, um, empowered with a lot of information from the first round, but also realizing that, you know, we had this ability to contribute to this dialogue and uh, what, in terms of what's happening in the current, current time.
7: Yeah, the the first time we performed it, yeah, we had no idea of of its reach and its profound um, impact in that moment. So the second time coming around this year, performing it, we knew what was at stake and we we tried our best to dive deeper into um, the, those, the stories that we were sharing. Mm-hmm. And um, Lenora gave me the opportunity to also meet with um, the mother of the person who uh, whose character mm. I was based off of, so we had a, a lunch date together, mm. and she shared with us a bit more of of what happened to him after. And so, with all that information in mind, and what it felt to have lunch with her, then to go on to performing the piece the second time around, it was was new. It yeah. was new, and it felt um, deeper. And I think this time we ended on a much more hopeful tone mm-hmm. um um a sense of spaciousness and and um mm-hmm. allowance um um and hope yeah.
6: Yeah, he played the character of Wang Gongju, and uh, his daughter, Penelope Wong
3: yeah.
6: was able to, during that luncheon, share quite a bit about her father, um, who he was as a person, his character, his accomplishments. Um, she gave some hints as to what his um, yes. detention time could have been like, and how he was a bit of a dreamer, and he was always looking for... Um, that sense of hope and accomplishment and um, working really hard and achieving. So it was exciting to then build the sequel with this knowledge mm-hmm. and then to have certain sequences feature family, old family photos of him and um, the rest of their kin and uh, for and to be able to embody the, the essence of him more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was quite exciting and um, just a note on that, this year we received two awards, so Ian received, you want to just talk about your award? (laughs) Well, the piece itself from 2017 won um, an Outstanding Production Award from the Isadora Duncan Dance Awards Committee, Mm -hmm. and this was the first we were the first recipients of it it's a brand new category, and what it represents is a high level of achievement in all of the categories whether that's choreography performance, um, visual design um, text and music so they felt it was at a high level for all the categories and we're very honored to have received that one and he and won a special award as well for his performance
7: yeah it was, it was very special to be with um, the whole cast and production there and to feel you know the the work being shared and, and recognized on that level and to, to see that you know when we can go out and and um share such important stories and 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 feel the community receive it that way and and then to be honored right back it was definitely um a very beautiful evening and um my my mother was in town uh, Mm -hmm. that week and you know at that time i had no idea i received the nomination but i had no idea what the results were so she came to the ceremony too, and then when they announced the name, uh, I was able to bring her up on stage, and I, it made my life <laughs> to see how happy she was and how, how proud she was. Oh, that's
5: beautiful. Congratulations. You oh, both. yeah. Thank that's, you. Uh, was, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a really touching performance. And so you're also here to uh, speak about the new performance that you have coming up the first weekend of November
6: Yes, next weekend, November 1st through 3rd We're performing a brand new piece entitled In the Skin of Her Hands at Mm -hmm. Dance Mission Theater Which is just a few blocks away from here and we're going to be utilizing the different rooms in Dance Mission. They have a theater as well as two studios. So in the first half of the program, the audience members will get a chance to travel through the different rooms and to take a look at um, the vignettes and scenarios that we've been setting up. Mm -hmm. So for this piece, it's inspired by the experiences of those dealing with cancer, battling cancer, Mm -hmm. specifically breast cancer. Uh, And in the last two months, I had the opportunity to interview 31 people. Wow. Um, Some of them are cancer survivors and some are family members. Mm -hmm. Also uh, an oncologist and two physical therapists. And um, it's been an incredible process. I would have to say that I've learned so much, you know, from people, what people are willing to share Mm -hmm. about what they've gone through. And everyone has had very different experiences. Um, some people have had, you know, very harsh physical dealings and, um, um, chemotherapy and radiation and others have had a lighter load in dealing with the illness, but regardless, there was just, um, so much richness to what they were sharing, um, that we're including a lot of the voiceover bits of their stories within the piece. So you'll hear in the sound score, probably almost everybody, um, <laughs> pretty much almost everybody in there sharing things. Um, I could talk a little bit about, you know, some commonalities, but also differences between them. And I'd actually, maybe while and talks a little bit, I can open up some audio, sure. the interviews, and, and prepare that for you. Yeah. So maybe and can talk a little bit about the genesis of the project and um, yeah. how we created the work
5: so yeah. far. Yeah, I'm curious as to what inspired it. Yeah,
7: yeah so um, yeah, Lenora uh, opened up and shared with us that her, her sister Karina was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so this that sort of set the tone of how you know, important and, and how uh, close this work was gonna be. And so at that in that realm too we um had an opportunity to um, take a workshop with the um, aerial dance company Bandaloop mm-hmm. And so we we trained with them for um for the beginning of the year and some of us trained during the summer. So we we learned how to, to essentially fly. <laughs> and um yeah, just seeing how much Lenora took on because she's, you know, they're interviewing over 30 people and hearing yeah. all these different stories and perspectives. And we couldn't, I couldn't even imagine how heavy that could be. You yes, know, I'm just yes. here in, in the dance studio, just hearing the, the stories and narratives play, but I can't even imagine, you know, actually meeting each and every one and, and you know, being with their stories. So, in this sense, this project feels huge. And, and how there's just um, so many affected and yeah. so many family members. It just, everyone is, is together on this. Yes. Yeah, and and I very, very much look forward to opening day or the whole weekend as well because I could just imagine, you know, that those that are being interviewed are showing up, their family, their loved ones. So it's just to me it's like a, a gathering a, a gathering and and just showing up to support and and fight for this cause
5: yeah it is a it is something that i think affects every like I, I can't i don't think i know someone who doesn't hasn't who doesn't know someone who has been affected by breast cancer it feels like it's such a unfortunately ubiquitous disease that it's yeah it's affected so many people
6: Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, so uh, what you're about to hear uh, is an excerpt of something that we did. We performed an excerpt at the Jurassic Resident Artist Program in Woodside, California da- last weekend. And mm-hmm. so the excerpt that you will hear right now is from a woman named Valerie So. She's a professor and a filmmaker at San Francisco State University. And um, her Thoughts on her experiences with breast cancer. Okay.
8: Well, you know, this is the funny thing about me is that I do a lot of social media. And so I posted it on social media pretty much uh, as soon as I started treatment. And I would and then after a while I started posting a lot on social media. Like I would post like when I was getting my chemo or like, you know, my various hair or hats or wigs or whatever. And I think people enjoyed sort of following that journey for whatever reason. Um, so for me, it was always very transparent. Uh, I have another friend who's got, it's some form of leukemia, and she's gone through treatment twice. Like she's done that thing where they take out, like do something to her bone marrow, and then she has to be in isolation for a month, like really intense. And she said she thinks it's really important for people to know when you have cancer because she thinks it's a public health crisis, right? She thinks it's not just like, people don't just happen to be getting this. There's like environmental reasons why people are getting this all the time. And so for her, it was almost like this thing, it's like she wants people to know that something needs to be done. Some people worry about job security too, like if they're gonna be discriminated against because they're sick. And again, you know, I'm really lucky because I am in a position where I have job security. And protected. so but I could see that I mean they can't legally fire you but they could certainly do find other ways to let you go so. so that was really helpful for me just to not worry so much about why it happened because then what happens is you stop thinking it's something that I did right it's something I'm, I have to blame myself for some flaw in my life <laughs> and then for me it was just like getting through it at that point and just always thinking focusing on getting through whatever treatment I was doing <laughs>
6: Yeah, so that was um, an excerpt from Valerie Sow's interview, and what you'll hear right now are um, two sections. One is um, from a woman who uh, shared about her experience, and then from an oncologist who I interviewed. Her name is uh, Pamela Munster. She works at UCSF. She's a researcher and an oncologist, and she had a lot of insight in terms of sharing about what her patients deal with, and she's written a book as well. So we can go ahead and listen to that.
9: In in oncology, where there are things coming up all the time, new information, nothing is 100% right. I think that caretakers try their best, but the knowledge platform is always changing, which is a good thing. I think we are learning more all the time.
10: My name is Pamela Munster, I'm a Swiss native, I came to the US when I was 28. I, my professional life is really focused on developing new treatments for people with advanced cancer, my focus is actually breast cancer. And then I have a particular interest in, in younger women and fertility and, and hereditary cancer. So it was quite surprising that I was then diagnosed with breast cancer at 48. And I was sort of like not feeling um, that I met any criteria of, of, you know, we don't have a large cancer family. My father's a single child. So I found out that I have a a BRCA2 mutation. So all of a sudden I found myself with a disease where I'm really an expert in. Um, It was an interesting um, position to be in. You know, on one hand, I knew so much about this disease. Um, and on the other hand as a, as a patient you realize how little you one actually knows. So I wrote a book, Twisting Fate, about uh, the perspective as a physician and patient mm-hmm. and, uh, and a lot of uh, what I'm going through is like really through the initial stages of, of what the patient experience, what the medical science behind this. But then also this phenomenon of the cancer blues, mm-hmm. uh, how, how significant the, the Part depression, part um, is not just depression, it's this incredible uncertainty. Depression is just one part, but there's, a, there's another really strong feeling that's really hard to place or explain to someone mm-hmm. unless you have been there. And that's this uncertainty that comes with the loss of your immortality. And that's sort of like black vertex that people fall into. I think everyone has to find their own ways of self calming or, or accepting for some people it's faith for some people it's friendship and for other people it's exercise mm-hmm. and hopefully for many it's all of them and, and I think a lot of it is time the the way to acceptance is, is it's uh, not uh, not easy and you know I grew up in, in, in Switzerland mm-hmm. um, There's a lot more pressure on people in the U.S. to be happy, and that is particularly prevalent in California. California is my absolute favorite place to live, but it's also um, a challenging environment to live in. There's the sense here the sky is the limit, but that also gives you that need to constantly reach for the sky, when you could allow yourself a day of non-reaching. You know, there's, there's clearly, there's uh, there's factors that are well known and they are clear and there's nothing much you can do about it. And one of them is like having a hereditary cancer mutation like BRCA1 and 2 at a highest risk for, for breast cancer. Like you have BRCA1 or 2 mutation, you have a 70% risk of having cancer, breast cancer over life. And then there's other mutations that have a lower risk in the 20 to 40% is like ATM check to uh, and many other mutations. And then, of course, there are environmental factors. Obesity. Alcohol has been associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, and frankly, excessive alcohol is bad for everybody, right, because there's, there's a lot of heart disease associated, with obesity it's like, there's not a, liver doesn't like a lot of alcohol either. And then other risk factors are um, excessive estrogen and progesterone exposure has been associated, but is a, is a magnitude lower than, than hereditary mutations. Right. Lack of exercise or a sedentary lifestyle is clearly associated with an increased risk for breast cancer. And exercise is valuable on so many levels that I, I would encourage every woman to exercise regularly. It just does a lot of good things for, yeah. all, for overall health, overall emotional well-being, nice to go out with friends and walk through a forest and just sit in a cafe and smoke. So, um, And other risk factors are, we don't know yet, maybe lack of sleep. Sleep has uh, become a much more well-known uh, a risk uh, and negative health factor if you don't sleep enough. How this pertains to breast cancer mm-hmm. is unclear. Some Scandinavian countries have now made breast cancer and shift worker uh, a uh, work-related illness. So, and there's clearly emerging data on that. Think like on a medical front, we have a lot of good resources, a lot of good treatment, there's a lot of advances, and we make a lot of progress when it comes to breast cancer. When it comes to equipping people with their way to handle it, we do very poorly. And you know, mental health support in the U.S. is abysmal at best. Right, it's like there's virtually no support you know, and, like, uh, and uh, what I see a lot is um, when you have a mastectomy, the, the surgical impact is quite significant. You gotta get the awareness out there, the lymphatic yes. system and how important it is. It's a second circulatory system that is so key mm-hmm. and doing a whole body approach into making the body work as a whole unit is, is really so important
9: these treatments between chemo and radiation, you're killing a lot of cells and it all has to go through your whole lymphatic system. And the lymphatic system is what keeps us alive. It just can't process or clean everything out fast enough. So with my radiation, that was when I started having issues of swelling you having, and trapping a lot of fluids that doesn't get out unless you work on manually trying to get it moving out of the area.
10: You gotta get the scar tissue broken down. You gotta get the fluid moving. It's-
9: With the radiation, now you get scarring, you got the swelling, and then, of course, you get the blistering. Swelling is a function of the ribs not moving. If you get the ribs moving, you're going to use the whole body pump to start getting the whole vascular system moving because the lymphatic system runs with the vascular system.
8: Well, you know, this is the funny thing about me is that I do a lot of social media, and so I posted it on social media pretty much as soon as I started treatment. And, I would, and, and then, then after a while, I started posting a lot on social media, like I would post like when I was getting my chemo, or like you know my various hair or hats or wigs or whatever. And I think people enjoyed fo- sort of following that journey for whatever reason. Um, so for me, it was always very transparent. Uh, I have another friend who's got, it's some form of leukemia, and she's gone through treatment twice. Like, she's done that thing where they take out, like, do something for her bone marrow, and then she has to be in isolation for a month. Like, really intense. And she said she thinks it's really important for people to know when you have cancer because she thinks it's a public health crisis, right? right. She thinks it's not just, like people don't just happen to be getting this. There's like environmental reasons why people are getting this all the time. And so for her, it was almost like things like.
6: So what you will hear in a second is a clip that I recorded
9: but we with talked my sister a little bit about the world Karina. Of this you know, and I think that it does describe uh, the initial onset of metastatic cancer because you're in this overwhelming, dark place where you didn't even know that something has just taken over your entire body. You know, it's everywhere. It's in every bone in your body, in your organs. And you didn't even know that it was in there growing. And all of a sudden you have this impending possibility of death and you have to pull your shit together (laughs) and swim and swim up towards the light and keep treading water and, uh, find your way out of the abyss, uh, Holding it together, being strong mentally and physically, and it's not an overnight process. It's uh, keep treading water and going towards the s- swimming towards the surface for months and months and months until you get a handle on things. Until you're a little bit lighter and you're floating a little bit easier, you know, until um, your body is fighting those cancer cells and, and building a defense uh, uh, in your own body. And so uh, that word makes a lot of sense for, for the first, uh, I think year that sort of sums up the, the struggle, uh, of being thrown in the deep end and then having to either sink or swim. So of course uh, I chose to swim, uh, but, you know, and to come out ahead and floating and sort of Relaxing now. Relaxing and floating. <laughs> yeah.
6: What do you feel has influenced you along the way? Kept you motivated.
5: And you're listening to the weekly review on Mutiny Radio.
10: but then I immediately thought on my grandma. She worked two jobs for as long as I can remember. That example of being such a hard worker and coming from
6: Colombia
9: with barely anything, I mean, she has more than any of it financially and like assets and everything. Um, she has more than all of us put together, you know? And that's,
8: that, that's very impressive, you know? And, and she worked for every single bit of it, you know? She's smart, you know? She's a very good businesswoman. Um, and she came knowing just
6: Spanish.
10: She is she is feisty, she's a warrior, she's a go-getter, she I think if death can come knocking at her door, she will say, I'm busy, come back later. Like my little granddaughter says, she's strong, intelligent, fuerte, valiente, intelligente, and uh, courageous. If there's anything I want to
7: do, then I should go do it. Don't wait. I was at a low point, but now, after a year or two, now I'm relaxed, happy. Although I am doing less work, the money is not the most important. The most important is if the person is living happily.
8: I mean, literally, like, life is too short to put up with, with idiocies. Um And I'm sure that that urgency comes from being sick. You know, you kind of realize that you, you could die any day. But at the same time, you know, I think I really appreciate life a lot more, too. And maybe that's
10: that was something that uh, we needed to go through to appreciate, to appreciate who she is and give her the best that we can.
0: Maybe things happen for a reason, not always. But I like to think that maybe this illness is
11: giving us an opportunity for exploring another type of love with her.
5: welcome back. Thank you so much for playing these clips. uh, There's a lot there. There is. Yeah. Yeah, Something I was um, curious about was what was the process like in terms of, I mean, you spoke to a lot of folks, and there's only a limited amount of time, I would imagine, for the performance. So what was the process like in terms of selecting which pieces to use?
6: Sure. Yeah. We, so we put a call out earlier this year for people who might be interested in sharing their stories Mm -hmm. and it, the word got spread that way. We also publicized it in different ways. And then I think it spread through word of mouth as well. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Of the 31 interviews mm, in the last two months, not only were we creating the dance material together but I was on the backside, you know, going through the interviews multiple times trying to um, pinpoint either experiences that I felt were very unique amongst the group Mm -hmm. or certain things that were commonalities. And I felt that it was also very important to have the oncologist and the healthcare professional perspective as well. Um, it was challenging, and continues to be challenging, because I feel like uh, so much of what people shared is important and probably, you know, not very well known by the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, for to give an example, there was one woman who uh, was at General Hospital, and she her regular doctor was not around, but she was dealing with the chemotherapy and, um, she ended up falling into a coma and they weren't sure why. Mm. Um, and the family was, um, not sure if she was going to come out of it. So they were making preparations, you know, considering selling the house and trying to figure out how to cover the costs if she does pass. Um, and but by some miracle she came back and she was able to come out of it and they realized later after her regular doctor had come back is that she had hepatitis B and after each chemo session they were supposed to have tested her blood um, but they didn't realize that uh, her liver failed basically and um, then because of her case then they they put into motion certain practices to make sure that everybody gets tested. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just feel like it was an unfortunate situation as well because she's an immigrant woman and the way that she shared it with me was that it was a miracle and and I definitely felt that, but I also felt uh were there some barriers that she had to deal with due to language perhaps. Um, but also, you know, having people uh, who are familiar with the healthcare system here, or um, are, have lived their lives or generations of their lives here, who could advocate for her, or could have advocated for her. So there were actually a lot of interesting occurrences um, that that struck me, and where I felt like I had to deal with certain questions about. Eth- being ethical and um mm. my place of privilege and when should I speak and when should I not um, but really I, I mm. felt like a it wasn't my place to say anything or make particular comments but really it was giving them the space to share about what occurred yeah yeah oh. <laughs> I mean there there are a lot of a lot of different stories and um, we, you know, those of us that got a chance to listen to it were quite moved by all of them, uh, and particularly the, the resilience in, um, this quest to live, you mm-hmm. know, and the, the, the overarching feeling of not being willing to succumb to the disease, you know, of course, um, there were people who passed and uh, family members of people who passed that I got the chance to interview as well. Mm. And so they shared another perspective on, you know, their roles as caretakers mm. and how uh, that could be challenging and uh, require a lot of energy and different emotional and psychological tactics to keep their loved ones um, hopeful yes. and pushing forward. Um as well as their their research for various different and new um, methods of treatment, mm-hmm. you know. So it was mm, a very, yeah. I feel like I'm just mm-hmm. opening the door to this type of research, mm-hmm. uh, honestly, because the, there's been such a short short span of, of time for me to be able to do this, mm-hmm. but, and, 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 I, I will have to say I will say publicly that if folks do want to share their stories with me, mm-hmm. I'm more than welcome to continue this interview process to be able to capture stories. Oh, you know I think um, the project will continue in various forms past this performance next weekend. yes Hmm. yeah is there anything Ian maybe Ian can talk yeah. a little bit about the rehearsal process and how sure. we've been dealing with the material and putting things together. Because for Ian who came in two years ago, we've done more um, site-specific works together. And the first one was on Angel Island. The second one was in a swimming pool. Then <laughs> okay. Angel Island again. Mm-hmm. This is our first opportunity to work together inside a proscenium mm-hmm. theater.
7: Yeah. Um, alongside that, you know, uh, last year, um, Lenora said we were going to do a, a project in underwater, and I didn't know how to swim. And, and um, our other dancer, Johnny, didn't know how to swim either. So we 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 were <laughs> we jumped in and we learned how to swim for the project. Oh, wow. And and this year, we're engaging in aerial work, and mm-hmm. neither of us have have done or. Uh, Many of us in the company haven't done it before, so now we're flying together. So it's, it's been really fun to just jump in these unknown territories for us and to explore in that way. And um, alongside, you know, feeling the, the parallel, um, just essence of navigating through um, unpredictable circumstances and situations and, and pathways and how we can support one another. And how, you know, we're, we're, we may be limited in certain ranges, but then there's also things that are, um, say, und- undiscovered mm-hmm. in certain areas. So it's it's been a big, um, kind of like boxes of mystery opening <laughs> on the horizon. Um, yeah, we're, first time working together in a proscenium theater felt mm-hmm. like. So strange because you know we're usually at the site in the building, <laughs> um, with the audience, and and so now to be shape shifted into um, a certain section of a proscenium theater, I know I felt myself kind of like uh, unfamiliar again <laughs> to to this, but then yeah, I think what um, just keeps us going is just remembering that we're. Here, honoring these stories that are being shared, and and um, yeah, part of me um, imagines, you know, like particularly with with this um, circumstance, it's sort of that unpredictability of it, where you don't know your time um, frame sometimes, and it's like with your loved ones you don't know how much time you have with them and uh, and and so there's like this unknown ticking clock Mm -hmm. sort of present and so yeah my my heart goes out to to all those facing and facing it together and 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 the bravery that that entails and also the like Lenora was saying the resiliency of how you know there's so many different ways of modes of research and from from your from your dietary to your spiritual well-being and like all these things that support it or just simply being with somebody you love and and how that captures and and um, keeps you going keeps you fighting and so yeah it's been very mm, warm and, and inspiring to to be with
6: As Hian mentioned earlier, you know, part of the inspiration for the project was um, when my sister got diagnosed last year. And at that time we didn't, we just were all caught off guard and and she had uh, stage four Mm. metastatic breast cancer. So it had already spread from both breasts to the lymph nodes to her uh, liver and her bones. And we were all just kind of scrambling, trying to figure out how best to support her. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be the best mode of treatment for her? She was getting lots of different opinions from health healthcare professionals that we knew or were related to. And um, so, at that point, given given what I felt I was capable of doing to help support, was I wanted to be able to interview her and just for her her to have the space to talk about whatever she wanted to share in terms of what she was going through, all the information she was learning, you know, how she felt her family was going through um, this simultaneously. She has four kids and she runs a business with her husband. So it was a huge kind of shift in her life and it really, forced her to to turn the mirror on herself and um take a look at how how can i heal from this you know what is it that that i need to shift in terms of my lifestyle to make the adjustments um and uh, give my body the space to heal and so that was really it it was that first interview with her where I felt oh wow I'm just totally reminded even though we grew up together I was reminded oh my gosh my sister she's a strong woman you know she's a fighter and there's there's no doubt that she's just gonna keep pushing which she did I mean she's always problem solving she's always trying to think of you know alternatives uh, ways to look at things seeking out information um, and so really, I mean, if we, if I were to say, okay, how did she heal? Well, she figured it out, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she can figure it out. Like she can come to, you know, the, the solutions to problems. And, um, but of course, you know, there is there, you're faced with this question of like, what's your time frame now mm-hmm. and how do we look at our time together, yes. uh, in a way that is generous, but also very clear so that we can appreciate the time that we have together. Um, And through this process for me, I did a lot of writing actually, and I did, um, I mean, I could share some of that writing, but we did writing uh, as a way for me to process it, like over time, and then um, we ended up building this piece. You know, we have some financial support through grants, but because it was such a short timeline, Really, um, we are still fundraising for this project. Okay. Um, and so, especially if it's going to be an ongoing project, I think mm-hmm. it's worth it to consider, you know, how can we support this type of research in the yes. long run? Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, I appreciate all forms of art, and that can really open up conversations and bring people into spaces where they might not either feel comfortable or really know how to get involved, mm-hmm. I think. mm mm-hmm. So... I really appreciate that you've put this together. Mm, the, thank you. And also just highlighting so many voices and recognizing that every person has their own journey and their own perspective on how they handle a diagnosis.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe um, I can share also uh, the artistic collaborators in the project. Oh yes, please. Yeah. Yes. So we're uh, we're working with longtime collaborators Olivia Tang with the media design and um, saxophonist composer Francis Wong and uh, bassist Tatsu Aoki, mm-hmm. who's in Chicago. Francis is based here. And um, we're utilizing some existing music tracks from Tatsu's from his ensemble in Chicago. We're having some live vocalization and singing from three members of the group here during the show um, with a, a cast of seven. So we have Hean, we have Johnny Wen, uh, Megan Lowe. Mm-hmm. So Megan has a background in aerial dance. She's uh, been dancing with Flyaway Productions and teaching with Bandaloop. And we have Lin Huang and San San Quan. San San teaches at UC Berkeley in mm-hmm. dance and performance studies. We have Jory Horn who also has experience in aerial dance yeah and so um, we're excited to be bringing this to you we can also offer tickets so again the performances are november 1st and 2nd at Mm -hmm. eight o'clock and november 3rd at five o'clock okay the program runs a little over an hour and then we're having a post-performance panels by some of the interviewees and healthcare professionals so each night it'll be a different panel
5: oh great yeah And if folks would like to purchase tickets, should they go to your website?
6: Yes. Yes. Which is Lenora Lee Dance, Mm L-E-N-O-R-A-L-E-E-D-A-N-C-E.com.
3: Great.
7: Excellent. I look forward to seeing it.
5: Yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up?
7: Uh, No, just um, we hope to see you there this weekend. Again, the performance is at Dance Mission, uh, November 1st, 2nd and 3rd. Uh, Friday and Saturday will be at 8 p.m. and Sunday will be at 5 p.m. And yeah, it would be amazing if you all could come out and be with us, be with the interviewees and just share that space and time to um, reflect, um, uh, brainstorm and, and, and just... Yeah, be with each other during this moment in time.
5: Yeah, and I would imagine that each performance will be not only unique in that all performances are unique, and I would imagine that given the folks who will be there afterwards, the conversations afterwards will be different as well. Mm-hmm. So folks could come every night and see a different performance.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: I can share a couple of um, writings. Um, Hean has some writing as well that we did as part of this Uh, project and process and this is something that I wrote uh, I'll give a a couple of short excerpts Mm -hmm. I received a voicemail from my father who said Karina's oncologist called and said the cancer has spread from both breasts to her lymph nodes to her liver and bones I hold myself up against the glass windows separating me and the pool from the lobby on the outside I call my father and he confirms it. Standing in the shower, water flows from the pools of my eyes to cross the intersection of the chlorine water being rinsed from my skin down into the drain of forever. They said this type of cancer isn't detected on regular mammograms. It was only until I complained about the masses that they ordered the 3D ultrasound for me. The technician knew right away that it had spread through the blood and the bones, through the tissues and organs, infectious, seeking pathways of their own to new territory, new cells, inhabiting more and more space in her being. If it's not an untype common, it's, if it's not an uncommon type of cancer, why don't they screen as a preventative measure? Then they're missing entire populations who have this. We feel the rivers flowing through the depths of her veins, through the question of tomorrow, through the broken visions of the future, to the pale softness of her skin, holding the storm inside. (sighs) Here's one more short one um, that's a little bit more general. The tides that ripple behind and in front, immersed in a sea, an ocean, The sunlight glistens across the tips of the waves out to the abyss of the horizon. The nerves calm. Everything releases to the beauty of this water all around, as wide as one can see, as deep as the center of the earth, extended for thousands of years, for generations of life, hosting and giving birth to creatures abound. Look closer. What do you see? Can you see beneath the surface of where the air meets the waves? This dividing line of land land creatures and those of the sea? A fourth wall. A fifth wall? Who is the viewer and who is being witnessed? Dive into the ocean of sun rays beaming down through the ripples of the water. As you fall closer and closer to the earth, through the stratospheres, the layers of life, the oxygen amasses. Where will you land? Who will you meet? What journeys will come about?
7: I uh, have you anything.
3: <laughs> Is this you?
6: Ian has a writing also.
7: From the Self beyond the self, a collective consciousness, the interconnectedness of all beings, universal frequencies, love in its purest form of frequency, energy, our capacity to awaken compassion, clarity, seeing the goodness and light in ourselves and the universe. We inherit the deeds the trauma, the gifts of our ancestry. But spiritually and morally, we can be binded, traced, overcome, and bestowed with both burden and gift. Walking serendipitously, highest frequency, love the selfless, giving of mother figures, there is an allowance that opens the window of the being Two channels, the voices cry and call of that which is necessary to be manifested and shared.
5: Oh, thank you for sharing.
6: Yeah. Oh. I think that's a nice way to close.
5: Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lenora and Hean, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, and thank you Roman. I very much look forward to the performance.
6: Yeah. Uh, we can offer some yeah. tickets too to your listeners. Oh, yes. So, whenever you feel like it, we can give three pairs of tickets away. Okay. Yeah, for the Friday performance, November 1st. Oh, at oh 8
5: wonderful.
7: O'clock. Yeah, and we'll put it that way. If um, three tickets, just email us at dance 2 at gmail.com. That's lenora, L E N O R A. Lee, L-E-E, dance, D A N two, the number two, at gmail.com. Just email us and mention Mutant Radio and um, your first name and last name. And the first three people to email us will receive those three tickets. Oh, wonderful.
5: Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to take a bit of a music break here, and then we'll be back with the rest of the program. So thanks again for being here, and we'll see you the first weekend of November.
7: See you, Roman. Yay.
5: welcome back to the Weekly Review, big thank you to Lenora and Ian for coming in. Really looking forward to checking out this show. Uh, for more info, again, please go to LenoraLeeDance.com. So right now, it's technically Tuesday, October 22nd, 2019. This show will be replayed again this Friday, October 25th, so yeah, that's the date. Wow, uh lot's on my mind at the moment. did want to say thank you so much for tuning in. And so recording on a different day, there's, yeah, I'm uh, feeling a little bit all over the place with my head, and we're still going to put this all together. One would think that recording a little bit in advance might include having more things being complete or... Uh, Run smoothly, and that's not necessarily the case. Also, I listen to a lot of other podcasts, and oftentimes there are folks who they think they're producers and and everything, and then I remember, okay, uh, putting this together, I uh, have a lot of voices and a lot of folks here, and at the end of the day, uh, I I don't have a producer exactly, so perhaps that's why it feels a little bit rocky at times. Anyway, we do appreciate folks listening. And now I'll be going into uh, another part of the show. Yeah, I'm going to mostly just have other folks talking during the show because I am getting my thoughts together. did want to acknowledge that we are on Ohlone land. And for folks, if you'd like to read up more, you can go to remaytush.com. And that is A Y T U S H. -H 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 And it talks about the history of the land and folks who were on the land before it was colonized. So wanting to put that out there as a resource. Also, especially for folks in the East Bay, to please pay the Shumi land tax. And you can type in S-H-U-U-M-I, land tax, and that will bring you to the Segorite Land Trust in the East Bay area. And learn more about the Ohlone folks. And give back to the land. Okay, cool, so coming up next, I am going to be playing an excerpt of a previous show that we did on September 27th, 2019. The election's coming up in San Francisco. I I used to describe myself as an anarchist who votes, which I guess is kind of contradictory. However, I recognize having certain people in positions of power who um, aren't terrible is better than having people in positions of power who are. And, wow, that's that's a great promotion. Anyway, did I mention that we don't really edit the show? Therefore, uh, we did want to play a previous interview that we did with Chesa Bodine. And Chesa is running for district attorney here in San Francisco. And you know Chesa's on the right side of things because the Police Officers Association are already donating to a PAC to influence his, the person who's running against him or the person who's got the most votes against him so far, Susie Loftus, who the um, mayor has put in, decided to put in even before the election. Uh, the police officers, uh, the association supports her. So recognizing that someone who wants to really work for reform is running that person should have the support I hope this sounds like a decent endorsement it's true we are endorsing him and if you'd like to hear more and you most certainly can hear more check out the interview with him that we had on the show a couple weeks ago and we're gonna be playing that in just a few minutes here Wow okay Whew. so Again, you can find it at the Mutiny Radio archive. If you go to mutinyradio.fm, I'm going to uh, get my thoughts together and chill out for a little bit. So in the meantime, I'm going to play a little bit of a music break, and then we're going to go into the interview with Chesa Bodine. And again, if you want to check out the... There's a couple voting guides that are out in San Francisco. There's the Pissed Off Voters Guide, and they have endorsed him. Juanita Moore has also endorsed him. A lot of folks have endorsed him. So, again, November 5th, vote for Chase Abudin. And, yeah. Also, if you're in District 5, Dean Preston. So, that's where, that's where we're going. All right. So, now, going to put on some music and then we'll get to the, our interview so you can hear more from Chasa himself. Whew. Again, a big thank you to uh, to folks tuning in. And if you'd like to support the station, that would be super helpful. You can go to mutinyradio.fm. There's a... There's a... Uh, Donate button. Wow. You know, I meditated this morning. I even worked out a little bit this morning. I biked this morning. One would think that perhaps I'd be more clear-headed, and I am still just so... There's so much going on in the world, and that's always been the case. However, just a lot going on. So thanks for bearing with me. Also, I would appreciate it if you could donate to the show. It'd be a big help. I come here. I volunteer. I do the show. Try to put on... Try to just talk about important things that are happening. And I'm happy to volunteer my time. And also, if folks could donate, it would also help out quite a bit. So, if you're able to, go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Anywhere from a dollar a month and more would be gratefully, great, greatly helpful. Thanks to all the folks who do Nine-Nate. right. And here's some music. And then... As mentioned before, we'll have the interview with Chasa that we did a few weeks ago. Please do vote, if that's something that you're into, on November 5th. And help get out the word to folks who choose to vote. And here's an end of one song. And then, yeah, this is one of the rougher shows that I've done. And that's okay, because that's how life is.
11: General Abrams and spiral Agnew to eat hog confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer Award Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia.
5: Welcome back to The Weekly Review, joined here by Chesa Boudin. Chesa, thanks for being here. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I thought we could start off, if you wanted to talk a little bit about what brings you into the studio. It could be pretty much anything, but whatever you'd
3: like
12: to start with. Well, I'm excited to be a candidate for San Francisco District Attorney. The election Mm -hmm. is about 39 days away from today, Mm -hmm. and it's a really unique and exciting moment in San Francisco history. It's the first time in over a century where there's no incumbent running for re-election. Mm-hmm. And it happens to coincide with the first time in, in really any of our lifetimes when there's been a broad national consensus that the criminal justice system is broken, that the status quo approach is not making us safer, is wasting tax dollars, and is destroying families and communities. And it's that intersection of San Francisco circumstance with national criminal justice reform movement that led me to decide to run for San Francisco District Attorney.
5: Mm-hmm. And I think many folks could argue that the criminal justice system isn't indeed broken, but it's working as it has been designed, which is to cause a lot of
12: harm for many people. Right, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. It's, a, it's a question of framing. What we know is it's costing us about 10 percent of our state budget just for the Department of Corrections. Oh. That doesn't account for local expenditures at the county level. And we know that it's a system of mass incarceration where the United States leads the world in locking people up, 25% of the world's prisoners. And we know that the impact of that incarceration rate is not evenly distributed. It's much more likely to fall heavily on black and brown communities, on uh, LGBTQ communities, transgender communities. And um, in San Francisco in particular, we have a horrific problem with racial disparities in incarceration about 4% of the city's population is black, but more than 50% of the jail is black. And and that's really one of the most visible manifestations of, of what people have come to call mass incarceration. Yes. Yes, and also we've seen like with the homeless sweeps
5: too, like homeless folks and I think folks who uh, are mentally ill are also victims of police violence quite a bit as well.
12: We've yeah, seen. We, we've seen over decades of increasingly tough on crime policies, an approach that really criminalizes poverty, Mm -hmm. criminalizes mental health, uh, and criminalizes drug addiction in ways that are not only inhumane and uh, wasteful of resources, but also actually undermine public safety. And my campaign is really all about bringing um, a new, fresh approach to criminal justice, one that takes a broader view of the context in which crimes are committed, Mm -hmm. and that focuses on trying to prevent crime and heal the harm that crime has caused rather than simply punishing people who've committed a crime
5: yeah absolutely i was reading a an op-ed earlier that folks had written about how police are sometimes brought into the ideas to solve the problem but they end up causing
12: more of the problems one of the things we see that's exactly right you know one of the things that we see especially in high crime neighborhoods and in heavily police neighborhoods in san francisco and across the country is that many people who are victims of crime whether it be domestic violence or shootings hesitate to call the police to report crimes because of their fear, in some cases of retaliation, mm-hmm. but in many cases, fear that the response by the police will actually re-traumatize them or create more problems than they're suffering at the hands of their abusers. That's something we need to change, and it has to start with restoring the integrity of the police department, restoring and rebuilding the trust between communities and law enforcement that's sworn to serve and protect those communities.
5: I. Pardon me, I'm a little bit skeptical of being able to, if the if it's systemically, if police have been brought in to, in many ways, protect property and wealthy folks, is it possible then to even save that institution? Is And is it even worth saving?
12: Well, so I think that's, that's the challenge, is to find ways to make sure that our law enforcement is not just working for, to benefit and protect the few, mm-hmm. but is actually working for all of us. So I've dedicated my life to ensuring that the criminal justice system benefits everybody, protects everybody, Mm -hmm. not just the rich and powerful and the well-connected. And we know that in San Francisco as across the country, all too often, whether you're a crime victim or whether you are someone who's accused of committing a crime, the quality of justice you receive depends on the color of your skin, Mm -hmm. what zip code you live in, Mm -hmm. and how much money you have in your bank account. And that's got to change. And that's why I'm running for district attorney. Cool.
5: Great. So what got you interested in... Deciding to pursue this path.
12: Well, let me take you back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. When I was born, my parents uh, dropped me off at the babysitter. I was about 14 months old, Mm -hmm. and they had it off for the day. Told the babysitter they'd pick me up that night, Mm -hmm. but they never came back. While I was at the babysitter, my parents participated as unarmed drivers in a tragically bungled armed robbery that Mm -hmm. left three men dead. Mm -hmm. Those men had families, had children. Uh, Those families were torn apart by the crime my parents participated in. Mm -hmm. Even though my parents weren't killed or physically injured that day, our family was also torn apart because of the crime my parents committed. My mother ended up serving 22 years in prison. Mm. My father is still incarcerated. Mm -hmm. He may never get out. As a result, my earliest memories are going through steel gates, waiting in lines of mostly black and brown women and children, Mm -hmm. just to see my parents. Just to give them a hug years decades now of visiting my parents in prison taught me some hard lessons about how broken our criminal justice system is broken for victims of crime who have so little to show Mm -hmm. for the billions of dollars that we invest in punishment broken for the people who've been convicted of crimes who go to what we call the Department of Corrections and rehabilitation Mm -hmm. but where we know no one is being corrected or rehabilitated right and we have recidivism rates of above two-thirds in california and even higher in san francisco county jail Mm. and of course the system is also broken for the communities where crimes are committed because those communities are being torn apart instead of investing in education building new schools and universities Mm -hmm. california has focused for decades on building new prisons yeah instead of providing equal justice, Mm -hmm. we've got this horrifically discriminatory system that undermines public safety called money bail, which I'm proud to say i fought for years Mm -hmm. to end. Um, And it's it's, uh, those kinds of problems that I saw firsthand growing up, day in, day out, going into prisons to visit my parents, um, receiving phone calls from them on recorded Department of Corrections Mm. phone lines, and thinking about how little punishing my parents was doing to heal the harm That they had caused. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's, that's, that's sort of the life journey that led Mm -hmm. me to decide to become a San Francisco public defender. Mm -hmm. As a public defender, I represent people who are too poor Mm -hmm. to hire their own attorney, to make sure that they also have equal justice. Right. As San Francisco's next district attorney, my goal is going to be really similar in some ways, to make sure that everybody in this city, no matter how wealthy they are, no matter how well-connected they are, mm-hmm. has equal justice under law.
5: Yes. And I've been hearing about a few other district attorneys uh, across the country who have also, like there was Tiffany Caban, I believe, in, in New York, and there was also was a f- person in, I think, Pennsylvania. Like Larry Kressner?
12: Yeah. Yeah, this is I part guess. of a national movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you've named a couple. Um, Tiffany Caban came within 55 votes of, yeah. of, of winning her race. Yeah,
5: I had announced that because initially I think at first they reported that she had won and I reported on the show and then I was sad to learn that was not the case.
12: Correct. You know, it was one of those situations where uh, she was ahead by over a thousand votes Mm -hmm. on election night. Yes. And then, you know, the machine was against her from day one. Yes, yes. And she was running a grassroots campaign. Um, It was really people-powered. She never had the the fundraising or the institutional support. Mm -hmm. And when they did a recount, um, they magically found enough ballots that, and, and threw many of hers out to where she ended up losing by 55 mm. votes. But I'll tell you, you know, her uh, election and her movement mm-hmm. has inspired people around the country. Yes. Um, it certainly yes. has energized our campaign, mm-hmm. helped generate volunteers for our campaign here in San Francisco. And I'm really honored to be supported by not only Tiffany Caban, but as you mentioned, Larry Krasner, mm-hmm. the elected district attorney in Philadelphia, as well as Kim Fox. Oh yes, in
5: Chicago. In Chicago, yes.
12: exactly, and Rachel Rollins in Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the people who are really leading our progressive criminal justice reform movement, mm-hmm. who are finding creative ways to reduce mass incarceration, mm-hmm. reduce racial disparities, mm-hmm. increase transparency and accountability for police and other law enforcement agents while keeping our community safe. And I'm really lucky to have their support and to be able to work with them mm-hmm. on implementing um, successful policies that they've modeled in their jurisdictions here in San Francisco starting in January. That's great. So what if so if folks
5: are interested in like helping your campaign are there ways people can volunteer and or help to get the word out?
12: Absolutely. Um, we are a grassroots campaign mm-hmm. and we depend on people power, creativity, energy um, you name it it's really coming from our volunteer base. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things people can do uh, depending on their skills. We'd love to have people phone bank knock on doors. Um, help out around the campaign headquarters, social media. Mm-hmm. Um, the best thing to do is go to our website, C H E S A B O U D I N C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. That's C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. You can sign up to volunteer. You can sign up to have a window sign delivered to put in your window. Oh, yeah. We'll put um, them up here oh great yeah mm-hmm. i think i think we have one uh, we can we can leave with you at the great. end of the show um and there's lots of other ways people can get involved so mm-hmm. we we'd love to have support and you know we really look at this as more than just an election campaign we're, we're building a movement um and it's going to continue the organizing and the grassroots energy has to continue after election day mm-hmm. uh, that's how we're going to effectuate the kinds of changes that we're committed to excellent
5: yes i believe um i saw you i I've, have volunteered a bit for shahid's campaign and so I believe I saw you at the farmers market. A few That's right. I think we we're at back. the in
12: the Inner Sunset, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah it's a great farmers market. I've lived uh, in the Outer Sunset for many years, mm-hmm. and uh, so the the Inner Sunset farmers market is, is close to my home. Always been one of my favorite locations, and we have a lot of supporters in that neighborhood. So I'm always happy to go and and uh, get a snack and talk to voters. That's great. Is there anything
5: else you'd like to share? We do have some more time. However, I no, you're on a, a time crunch.
12: so. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. There are a couple specific issues I'd like to talk about mm-hmm. that are real priorities for me in the campaign and also a couple things that I'd, I'd like to share that I'm proud to have worked on over the last few years. Because yes. I think when it comes to deciding who to vote for, mm-hmm. for me personally, one of the most important things is not just the rhetoric that someone uses or the promises that they make, but also the track record that they have. Mm-hmm. And so I think... You know, the reason I've been able to uh, build such a big movement and and have so many volunteers is really because of my life's work. The perspective that I bring Mm -hmm. as someone who's had parents in prison and who's worked every day in the Hall of Justice for so many years, uh, but also because of the work I've done. And, and, you know, one of those projects that I've led is around money bail. And I mentioned that earlier, but, Mm -hmm. you know, San Francisco and, and all of California has a system where... A wealthy person can buy their way out of jail Mm -hmm. no matter how dangerous they are, Mm -hmm. while a poor person who may be wrongfully arrested, wrongfully accused of a low-level crime with weak evidence against them will languish behind bars simply because of their poverty. It's a system that is both discriminatory and also undermines public safety. Mm -hmm. And so for many years, I've led litigation efforts in state court. We now have a case pending before the California Supreme Court. And in federal court where I've won um, reversals of local practice from more than five different federal judges that have agreed with our argument that this undermines public safety and that this is something which discriminates explicitly, violates equal protection, Mm -hmm. violates due process. As district attorney, I'm committed to ending money bail, Mm -hmm. to never allowing my staff to put a price tag on freedom. If someone is too dangerous to be released To the community, then the fact that they're wealthy doesn't make them safe. Mm -hmm. And if someone can safely be released with appropriate conditions, the fact that they're poor should not be an obstacle to allowing them to go back to their family and community. Of course, yes. Now, there's another area that I think today, with the racist Trump administration, is more important than ever, and that's immigration. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration is using xenophobic, nativist policies and rhetoric Mm -hmm. to divide this country. It's using hate for immigrants, as a way to drive a wedge between communities, Mm -hmm. and to scapegoat. It's a tremendously dangerous time across the country because of that really uh, scary approach that the Trump administration is taking. Mm -hmm. I'm proud to be the only candidate in this race who has a long track record of pushing back against ICE, standing up for our immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've committed to creating an immigration unit Mm -hmm. in the district attorney's office once I'm elected. Let me tell you why. When local law enforcement cooperates with ICE, it undermines public safety. Mm -hmm. It distracts our resources that we need to be spending on local law enforcement priorities, and it undermines trust in immigrant communities Mm -hmm. and makes it less likely that immigrants who are victims of crime or who are witnesses to crime will come forward and cooperate with local law enforcement. Mm -hmm. If we want to provide equal justice, if we want to protect everyone in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. we need our immigrant communities to know that we have their back, that we will never cooperate with ICE. And I'll tell you, back as recently as 2012 and 2013, San Francisco still handed people over to ICE. Yep, yeah. I mean, if you got arrested as an immigrant in San Francisco and taken Mm -hmm. to jail, at the end of the case, even if you were acquitted of all charges, even if the district attorney decided not to file charges against you, Mm -hmm. the sheriff would hold you until ICE came and picked you up. Now, I had a client in that situation, Mm -hmm. back in 2012. She was a grandmother from El Salvador, charged with shoplifting Christmas presents from the Gap for her grandkids. And at that time, everybody said, there is nothing you can do. She's gonna get deported. She's gonna get handed over to ICE. And, you know, luckily I've been to El Salvador, I've lived in Latin America, I Mm -hmm. speak fluent Spanish, and I begged her to give me time to not listen to or accept that this was a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. And I built a coalition. I worked with immigrant advocates across the city. I worked with her family who played a leadership role. And we persuaded the sheriff that he had not only the legal power, but the moral obligation to stop cooperating with ICE and to let her take responsibility. She pled guilty to Mm -hmm. shoplifting and then go back to her family and her grandkids. Mm. After that case, we did it again and again until we persuaded the sheriff to institute a policy And ultimately, the Board of Supervisors passed, a few months later, a sanctuary city policy that Mm. I'm proud to say I'm going to continue to defend as San Francisco's next district attorney. Great. Yeah, that's crucial. That's the track record um, that I've got. And here are some of the things we're going to do in keeping with that track record Mm -hmm. once I'm elected. First, treat mental illness before crimes are committed. Mm -hmm. Not wait until people commit a crime and go to jail. Today... San Francisco's county jail is the number one provider of mental health services. It's Mm -hmm. a disgrace. It's Mm -hmm. ineffective. It's inhumane. And perhaps worst of all, it guarantees that we're going to have more victims of crime because we refuse to address the root causes until after someone is victimized. Right. That's got to change and it will on day one when I'm district attorney. Second, we need to treat survivors of sexual assault with dignity. And that starts with testing every single rape kit. Mm -hmm. When someone has the courage to come forward after a sexual assault, submit their body to an invasive evidentiary gathering process, Mm -hmm. cooperate with law enforcement, and then have law enforcement say, we're not gonna even bother to test the evidence. We're gonna let it gather dust in the evidence room shelves. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening today in San Francisco. That's what's been happening in San Francisco, and it will change when I'm district attorney. We will test every rape kit and treat survivors of sexual assault with dignity. And I'll give you one last example of something I'm committed to doing. Mm -hmm. Today, victims of crime are largely excluded from the process. Mm -hmm. Often, they never hear from the district attorney's office until and unless they receive a subpoena in the mail. Mm -hmm. I'm proud to be the only candidate in this race to have committed requiring my staff to contact every victim of every crime within 48 hours to give them a voice and to give them the right to participate in a restorative justice process that can help heal the harm that they've suffered instead of just using them to punish the people that have harmed them. Wow. Well, thank you very much for for sharing that it's my pleasure uh, yeah. i'm really excited about the possibility of working uh, with so many of the people in san francisco the community groups and organizations that yes. have endorsed me the labor union mm-hmm. the community activists um, who are part of this movement and who recognize that we can do a much better job keeping our community safe and treating people with dignity absolutely well thank you so much for being here great to be here thanks for your time and yeah uh, and enjoy the rest of the show oh well, thank you thanks Thanks to Chase
5: Aboudine for being here. We're going to take a bit of a music break and then wrap up the show in a little bit. Thanks so much for tuning in to Mutiny Radio. And we'll be back in just a
7: bit. And-
5: back to the weekly review that was tribe eight with the song money loves me off the album thanks for the memories okay so we got a little bit of time left and i thought uh we'd go over some news stories and other things that folks can do so perhaps not even as many news stories but more action items so if you happen to be in new york on wednesday october 23rd and again we're currently broadcasting on october 22nd You can go to the NNJ Letter Writing Night, which is Wednesday, October 23rd from 6 to 9 p.m. in East Harlem at 215 East 99th Street at the El Barrio Art Space.